This week on One Body Stewarding God's Creation, Cecilia Wagle talks about contemporary education issues. How has Catholic education changed over the years? What does it mean when we say parents are the primary educators? What issues should we be aware of? Well, let's find out. Cecilia is being interviewed by Divine Mercy Radio's on-air host, George Tolman. So we have we have Cecilia here, and Cecilia has a master's degree in theology from the University of Dallas. And after teaching high school theology for six years, she returned to Western Kansas and now stays at home with her three children. Cecilia, welcome back to the Thank program. You. Well, Cecilia, let's get going then. All right, let's go. What is the difference between a Catholic approach to education versus a secular approach? Well, there are a lot of differences. <laughs> you know, that's, we that's, could be here for a few hours, it's right? It's a yeah. big topic. Yeah. But I think one of the number one differences is that a secular approach often really just tries to be instruction. You know, when we talk about education, what they really mean is teaching how to do things. Even if they mean teaching how to think logically or Right, but it's still about a, a how, right? Whereas a Catholic approach to education is really about formation of the person. That will include instruction, right? But it's, it's about more, it's about flourishing of the human being. And it's recognizing that sometimes it's good to learn things. It's, there are elements of education that, that don't have to be useful. Right, at least not useful in that very practically applicable, going to give you a job kind of way, but useful in the way of it makes you a better person, it makes you more human, it makes you um, more able to understand the world as it really is, right, through the eyes of God. That that is a big core reason why I think a proper Catholic school is going to look fundamentally different than your typical, you know, secular school, because what exactly what you just said, when you take a whole body approach towards educating children, you don't, you're not only concerned about test scores, you're not only, you're not only concerned about instruction, you're, you're concerned about their spirituality, right? You're concerned about their morality. You're concerned about a lot of other things outside of a test score, for lack of a better phrase. Right, you know? and I think that one of the challenges for Catholic schools, and it really is a challenge, is that sometimes the resources and materials that are that really are best for instruction are not also best for formation of the person, right? And so there is a tension there, and it it's a difficult line to walk for a school that is trying to really form good people and really form Catholic people who look at the world in a Catholic way. But but a lot of textbooks and 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 even teachers who even really well-intentioned teachers but who have been formed at secular universities and in secular education um, departments they approach their topic with certain underlying assumptions that are not Catholic in nature. And they may be passing those along without even realizing it. And so it's, it's difficult. You, know, you talked about this ideal Catholic school, which does not exist, <laughs> right? Because, because we're not in heaven yet. Yeah, that's right. right. That's right. <laughs> we will all know perfectly then. That's right. But, but here, you know, finding, because we do want to give good instruction. You know, we want to help our, our kids, you know, be 
or whoever, adult education, whoever, help the student really excel both in those practical matters and in their person, right? And so finding the, the way to do both of those things is hard. You bet. Well, and I think there's tension, and because historically, Catholics were persecuted in this country, you know, and a lot we're of we're not those, welcomed here. Yes, that was not <laughs> not welcome at all. And yeah. a lot of the Catholic ghettos of your ghetto in the in the older sense of the word, which means a group of people of the same, usually nationality, living together and kind of still living their culture, right? Um, existed because of that, because they weren't welcome anywhere else, and they had to form their own communities and form their own schools um, to avoid persecution, and they were still persecuted at times. And so having those ghettos that were very insulated was a survival technique at first, but then it became a place where Catholic culture was flourishing, even as there was Protestantism in the rest of America. But of course there is... You know, there's a tension there where if we only keep Catholicism to ourselves and we're not being evangelical and we're not going out into the world, that's not what we're called to do either. You know, and I think some people were feeling that as part of why there was change. There's also the tension you talked about religious running Catholic schools. You know, the all-time highest number of professed religious in the world was right after World War II, which makes sense because there had been two world wars Right. And there had been a lot of terrible things. The Spanish flu came through the depression here in America. You know, there was a there was a running of people for religious orders. Just every religious order was bursting at the seams. And we especially here in the Midwest, that's when we built a lot of schools. Right. A lot Catholic schooling took off then. And as we went into the 50s and the 60s, there was a purposeful approach of trying to keep ourselves separate from secularism, to try to keep those Catholic ghettos alive. And we had our priests and nuns who were teaching in our schools. And, you know, I even taught in a school that had, when it was built, had its own little, like, power plant and everything because they wanted to be not at all dependent on the city and the secular society. They wanted to be completely independent and do their own Catholic thing. Um, which I think there's a kind of a yearning right now to go back to that. You know, there's the popular book, uh, The Benedict Option. It seems like all of my friends have read um, (laughs) and talk about, about do we need to go back to the more medieval monastic style of community where we were all centered around a monastery and the monastery was the heart of the community. And that's how, that is how in some eras in medieval Europe, they kept education alive. They kept religious education and just education is through those monasteries and the communities surrounding them. Or again to that tension, you know, do we need to be out in the world? And we don't have the religious anymore that we had in the, you know, post-World War II. We can't staff all of these Catholic schools with religious. And it's hard to pay lay people just wages that will support a family and to keep your Catholic school alive. It, it's hard to do. I mean, it's, this is a tension in, in Catholic education because when you have a religious, one, they don't have children. They don't have a wife and kids, right? They do have maybe the elderly of their order and things, but they don't need quite as much pay to be fair normally. And also they have the support 
of all of their other educators that they live with. You know, if you think about, you have a whole building full of teachers. So you, as a, as a first-year teacher and anyone who has taught before, will know that is a very difficult year. When you come back and say, I have this, this student and I don't know what to do with him, or you come back and say, I don't know what to do to teach this thing, you have 50 people to ask who have experience and who are there, who live in your house, and who can pull out their notebook and say, here is the worksheet I gave. Here is the project we did. You know, it's, um, it's a good way to sustain a school. But it's one that we don't have as an option right now. And I think schools will ha- are having to find other ways to make it. And that, again, it adds a tension between the Catholic and the secular because I hear from administrators all the time, well, we need to, we need to keep enrollment up. We need the tuition money. We need, and so they're not wanting to ruffle any feathers. And and there are parents, unfortunately, who want the education aspect. They want, they want to, they don't, they want to have their cake and eat it too. They want their <laughs> child to be formed with morals and to have this better education and outlook on the world, but they don't want it to include like overt Catholicism, sure, right? Sure. And it's not possible. Yeah. It is the story of, of human institutions, even ones that are part of the church that that they degrade, I don't know if that's the right word, that's maybe too harsh, but they lose their focus over time, and then there's often a great renewal. I mean, you see this historically with even really wonderful, great religious orders that were founded by a great saint, and then they start to lose their focus and lose their way, and then, you know, 100 years later, another great saint rises up to reform them, to help them find their original mission. And I do think we're in a time of of reform, the beginning of a time of reform for Catholic education in the United States. And I think what's pushing that is our topic for today, which we haven't touched on, um, is parents, right? Um, So what I'm supposed to be talking about. That's right, that's right. (laughs) Is parents as the primary educators. Um, That, this this comes from an encyclical by Paul VI, uh, Gravissimus Educationis, and, which basically says that, parents, it's your job. And, and he's talking about education in the faith and education in general, which I think is interesting. Sometimes we focus on parents as the primary educators in faith, and we forget that parents are primary educators of their children. Now, that does not mean that every parent has to homeschool, which, you know, if anyone's thinking that, they probably felt a little panic in their heart <laughs> as I was speaking. Um, but what it does mean is that um, at the end of the day, you're responsible. And you may need help. You may need public schools, Catholic schools, whatever's available to you. You know, you have a responsibility to try to do the best you can for both faith formation and regular education for your child. But yeah, yeah, we we all need help with that. But the the phrases I often hear of, well, I don't know why my kid doesn't know that I sent him to PSR or CCD or whatever the catechism classes are called locally, or, oh, well, I don't know why they left the faith. They went to Catholic school. And, And of course, you know, children have will, you know, they free will and not Every perfectly educated child will necessarily stay in the faith. So, you know, that is our hope, but that's not a reality. But 
that's also not an excuse on the parents' part. The fact that they were sent to Catholic school or sent to PSR catechism classes is not enough. You know, the faith has to be lived and taught in the home, and an appreciation for education has to be lived and taught in the home. And I don't, it doesn't necessarily mean only like college education, right? Or it can be education in the ways of, a, of the farm life or in the, you know, in a, in a trade. But because we're talking about a Catholic approach to education, a Catholic trade education isn't going to be just, you know, how to, you know, a carpenter isn't going to only learn how to join these pieces of wood together in a sturdy way. They're also going to learn things about the value of their work and learn things about what this do from them to the community and their place in that community and, and learn things about the importance of beauty and you know, beauty as a transcendental that to make a beautiful thing is to make the world better and more godlike. You know, those those things that bring value to life and help us help us understand our identity, you know, they're not only for like college prep, right? They can be, this should be found. I mean, I would love to see, and again, this is a movement that's starting, but I'd love to see more Catholic trade schools and Catholic agricultural schools because that is a, a problem we've had in the past where we see Catholic schooling as something very intellectual, which it can be but it doesn't have to be. So Cecilia, let's talk a little bit about, and we talked about this a little bit off and on here, but I'm gonna bring it up explicitly one more time and, and let's just hit home as to what we mean here. The church speaks of parents as the primary educators. Yes. What does that mean? What it means is it's no one else's job. <laughs> That's what it means. And it means that, you know, we, we like to be angry at the government right now. That's very popular. And there are reasons to be angry. Um, but at the end of the day, it's not the state, the government, the public school system, or whoever's job to educate your child. Right? Again, if you can receive help through that, that's fantastic. Right? And, and of course, we should do whatever we can in the public sector to try to influence that education to where it's healthier and more beneficial for our children, absolutely. But it's not their primary job, it's primarily parents' job. And we forget that. And, if, and I, I feel like there's someone out there listening who's like feeling heart palpitations because they're like, I can't do this, I don't know what I'm doing. And of course, God doesn't call us to be anxious, right? But, um, I know when I was teaching, I was a high school teacher, high school theology, I felt like I could maybe change the course of maybe 10% of my students' faith life because 90% came from the home and what their parents were doing, what their parents were saying, you know, how often they were going to church, how they talked about church, which a lot of parents don't think about. You know, they may speak very negatively about the, the parish or the priest or, or whatever, and not realize the effect that can have on their children, right? How they, how, what kind of sacramental life they have. Are they making an effort to make sure your children go to confession? Are you driving them there? Are you making sure that they have other friends who are also Catholic and who are viewing the world in this way, right? These are all important things that 
are the parents' job, right? And you can't, you can't say, well, I sent them to Catholic school. Guess it didn't work out, right? I mean, that's, it's not an excuse. We need to take a break right now, but stay tuned to Divine Mercy Radio. We'll be right back with more from Cecilia Wagle on contemporary education issues. We're back on One Body, Stewarding God's Creation. One body, one body, stewarding God's creation. Contemporary education issues. One body, one body. With Cecilia Wagel. One body, stewarding God's creation. George Toman conducts the interview. All right, Cecilia. So now, let's talk about let's talk about this. Switching gears just a tad. What what are some of the secular ideas that children may pick up in their education that parents may need to counteract at home? So this is what I really want to talk about today, because it's tricky, and it's many parents and educators who are well intentioned, good Catholics, trying their best, may not see this. They may not realize that there is this potential for miseducation, right? And, and so basically what it is is we talked about earlier that, you know, secular schools are trying to instruct to say how to do something. And they have resources that may be very good at that. But they may be smuggling in other ideas, underlying assumptions that are not Catholic. You know, things like... Um, well, the, the STEM movement in education right now, that's very popular, or even, even STEAM, which is the new, STEM stands for Science, Technology, Engineering, and Mathematics, and STEAM is an attempt to um, throw a little bone to liberal arts and say Science, Technology, Engineering, Arts, and Mathematics, but they really both mean the same thing. It's really an emphasis on saying what is important in education, what we are focusing on in education and what we, what we really think is valuable is what is practical for building things and practical for making money and practical for use. Instead of, I mean, it's exactly the opposite of formation of the person. Now, that does not mean that some schools that say, hey, we do STEM education, don't also do formation of the person, but it's not part of the STEM movement. And it's something that can be very difficult and sneaky. It can sneak in in a lot of the resources targeted at this very popular movement right now, this utilitarian mindset. Utilitarianism is a, uh, a way of thinking that says, what has value is what is useful. Now, of course, you know, some things have value because they're useful, like like a pen. You know, if it doesn't write, it's not a good pen. Throw it away. But that's not all that has value in the world. And it's particularly not what is valuable in people. So goodness, truth, beauty, those things may not always be useful. Sometimes they may seem very unuseful. But they're the most valuable things there are. You know, God may not seem useful sometimes, but he is the, the greatest being, right? 
And people may not feel useful sometimes, you know, particularly people in very vulnerable stages of their lives may not be useful, but that does not detract from their value. I think that particularly here in Western Kansas, where there's a history of mostly immigrant families moving here with nothing and surviving on the land by hard work and scrimping and saving and kind of kind of the American dream of like it was hard and they had no money and no nothing left for luxuries but by being savvy and and by hard work they made it right that's sort of our identity sometimes in western Kansas which is wonderful but I think it can make utilitarianism be something that's even more likely to take hold here without us knowing it. I think a lot of people, myself included, sometimes find ourselves thinking this way without meaning to, which makes it, again, all the more dangerous when it's also implicit in a curriculum. And so thinking and speaking as if what makes this person valuable is what they can do for society or, or that things are not valuable just because they're beautiful, like they have to have some other practical purpose, which, I mean, is a nice thing if it does both, but beauty has value too. And so um, I will say this is somewhat of a um, tension between, kind of the tension between boomers and millennials <laughs> that we hear so much about right now, um, because utilitarianism is primarily a modern, not modern in the sense of right now, but modern in the sense of eras of philosophy, a modern philosophical idea that was very, very popular in the boomer era, right? And it's the way a lot of our um, people of that age think without knowing it, right? Without meaning to, right? Not, And a lot of the way that they have passed on the faith without meaning to. And so it calls us to all be very introspective of taking what we receive and analyzing it. And when we think about what were the, the huge social issues that we had in the U.S. a few years ago at the, the pinnacle of the boomers, so to speak, well, euthanasia and abortion, which are both arguments of utilitarianism. They're saying that these people do not have value because they're not useful, right? And so a lot of the people rejecting, rightly rejecting abortion and euthanasia, but still not realizing that they hold some of these utilitarian ideas, you know, come across as contradictory to a more postmodern people, which is sort of the rising philosophical movement in the masses that a lot of the millennials and Gen Z people are thinking that way without realizing they are, right? Sure. Um, and if you'll, you'll find, this is a little bit of an aside, but you'll find in the abortion debate, it's no longer very science-based, right? When I was a kid, it was. That was all the arguments were like, this fetus is a person, here are pictures, here's the sonogram, which has some value still. But now you'll see that they're arguing about the experience of the mother and the experience of the child. Because there's a, a rejection, a, a right rejection of this utilitarian mindset that only what is pro oh, and, and prog- progressive mindsets, which kind of goes hand in hand. It's a little different, but they're both facets of modernity. We're like, what gets us ahead? You know, the race to the moon, you know, um, we're going to conquer nature, conquer human nature and conquer nature out in, 
in the world and and make ourselves in control of everything, which, you know, when I say it that way, you're like, yeah, that doesn't sound like Catholicism because God's not in charge. But yet again, this was so much a part of the culture that everyone thought that most everyone thought that way a little bit without meaning to. Right. And now there's a reaction against that. Right. Um, But the reaction, unfortunately, the mainstream reaction is not rightly ordered either. You know, it's it's uh, the other the swinging the pendulum to the other side. It's reactive. And so instead of um, instead of saying, oh, you know what it people have their value in God. You know, people have dignity because they're made in the image and likeness of God. And they're saying, well, you know, people's experience is what's important. And so if you know, the, the abortion, the pro-abortion argument uh, is often something like, well, if this child was going to have a hard life, it'd be better if they just died first so they didn't have to experience all those terrible things, which is obviously not better. But um, it is going to take us changing how we talk about things. And I know as, as, I, as a teacher, I often saw textbooks, uh, theology textbooks even, fighting this fight of modernity, of fighting against progressive ideas and utilitarian ideas with progressive and utilitarian ideas, right? With the, with the same style of argument and not even realizing it. And those things being completely not um, persuasive at all to the younger generation who reject all of that. And of course, they have their own isms. You know, they, you know, postmodernism, <laughs> yes. it, you know, the, um, I, they don't, not they, everyone, of course, but the movement rejects that there is any standard of truth, that there is a deep reality that really exists and is true. Everything is experiential to them. You know, everything is, um, just based on on how you're experiencing it because there's no truth right and of course that's also a problem you know and that's i think at the heart of the boomer millennial debate as well as the plummeting economic um, state but that the boomers look this is of course a oversimplification but the boomers are saying how can you think there's no truth how can you think these things and the the millennials or Gen Zs are saying, how can you be so heartless? How can you view everything verse on its utility, right? And none of them realizing that's what they're saying and what they're thinking. Again, folks, we are listening to Mrs. Cecilia Wagle right now talking about parents of primary educators. Cecilia, we have about, I'd say about 15 minutes left, so we're on good pace here. Uh, as an adult, what can parents do if they are afraid that they don't have the knowledge or skills needed to educate their children? That's a wonderful question. Um, that's scary. I, I have my master's in theology, and I worry about that. Okay, so it's, that is a good question. And, and the answer is, of course, first, go to your parish. Find the resources nearby. And, and that's why we have parish school of religion and C, or whatever you – I don't know what it's called in your all – parishes, CCD, catechism <laughs> classes, you know. That's why we have those things. That's why there's often adult education. Go there and learn so you can pass it on to your children, right? So that's the first thing I say. See what you have locally available to you. Also, 
We have the internet now. It's fantastic. There are podcasts and YouTube videos. You know, I really recommend uh, Bishop Barron's, uh, particularly for this kind of topic I was talking about, for discovering the underlying ideas that you may have that you don't even realize you have that are not really in tune with the faith, right? Whether it whether that means looking at your faith through political lens or whether that means, you know, utilitarianism or denying the found denying that there's truth out there. I would say he really addresses a lot of those things in his videos and podcasts and articles, you know, whether whether you like to read or listen. Um, So lots of good resources there and lots of good books. You know, we. We're really in a good time for Catholic publishing. There's a lot of, of publishing, Catholic publishing entities that are really churning out trustworthy things of all intellectual levels. You know, like whether if you're saying, oh, this seems a little intimidating, I don't know all the isms, that's okay. There's books out there for you too. You know, that's, so I think in terms of educating yourself, there's a lot of resources. And, you know, Catholic Radio, which you're listening to right now, right? That resource, too. Also, I would say take it to prayer. Take it to prayer because God will help you see yourself truly. And that is the challenge. It's the challenge as parents in everything. The challenge for everyone in everything. But for parents, you know, we don't see how the things we're doing affects our children unless we really take some time with God to, to look at ourselves and our lives through his eyes and ask him, how are we doing, right? So I say definitely take it to prayer. I would also say for those who are who are really looking for more and who are more intellectually minded maybe, I think it can be very helpful to read books. They don't even have to be, they can be storybooks, you know, but from other eras that are not from the 20th or 21st century because every every author just like every teacher comes from a place and a time and are going to tend to have the ideas the assumptions underlying their works of that place and time and so sometimes reading things from different places and times and getting into their world can help us see the difference between how they thought and how we thought and help us recognize and whether they were right or wrong, you know, but recognize these things we didn't know. I didn't know I thought this way until I encountered someone who thought differently, right? And so uh, reading classic literature, right? Even, again, it, it doesn't have to be super intellectual, even, you know, classic children's stories, Right. Sure. Can really help us view the world differently. You know, there there is a saying out there, you are what you read. And I'm an avid reader myself. And I know that reading isn't the, necessarily the easiest for some people. But for those that reading is an enjoyable activity, I do think finding ways to get that literature, again, not only as knowledge to yourself, but also again, being able to, to share that and, and be, you know, informed. In terms for our audience who who may be like, yeah, I, I do want to get into that, but I need some specifics because I just don't want to do an Amazon search, you know, and go that way. So what would you what would you recommend? I think I would recommend people to stick with the things that are classic and famous because they are for a reason. Usually, you know, if if it's a work that you um, you've heard about, like Shakespeare, 
you know, an author you've heard about from back in the day. I I think there's a lot to be gleaned from like uh, Victor Hugo or Alexander Dumas, you know, and, and I'm an avid reader too. So, um, <laughs> of course, some of these some of these works may seem intimidating, but um, that doesn't mean you can't listen to them via audio book or, you know, or that um, even an abridged, a well abridged version, maybe for those who feel like you don't have time to tackle the whole thing. I think that uh, those are the books that have really challenged the way I think about things sometimes, right? And so, yeah, finding finding those lists of great works and then, you know, cutting off any that were written post-1900 or by French Enlightenment thinkers <laughs> in the late 1800s. The endarkament, as we like to say there. Um. And and that is important, too, to recognize, especially what your children are reading. You know, to contrast Tolkien with, like, the Harry Potter series, which are very utilitarian. I mean, I'm not even going to talk about the witchcraft factor. Like, we don't – I don't even need to get into that because underlying that, there is a morality system in the books where as long as everything turns out okay, then all the things – all the times Harry disobeys and endangers lives and even attacks his classmates are forgiven because it's all about the ends. It's not a, they don't care about the means. Right. That's and that's that's a dangerous morality. And I'm not saying that um, that a a child who has been well formed in the faith and well formed in morality couldn't read that book and have a good conversation about that with a parent. But I am saying the parent needs to have that conversation and needs to be aware of of the underlying themes in the books your children are reading. You know, like we're all very concerned right now with reason about um, books and media. And, you know, the big topic right now, I think, is how they're portraying LGBTQ plus mm-hmm. issues. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's definitely something to be concerned about. But also. We talked about those postmodernisms. We just touched on it a little. The the way of thinking that underlies why people are so eager to accept this change, these this change in morality. The way of thinking is is again that there's no deep truth. There's no not even biology, not even your body is a deep truth. That everything's experiential, or that um, or even that we're just spirits that our bodies are just fleeting and temporary and not reality and not important that those fall away you know that's as catholics we believe in the resurrection of the body and that as humans that we are we are hylomorphic which means that we are fusions of body and soul and that they're both equally us right our body is us we are our body and we are a soul right that uh, the soul forms our body and animates it and makes us who we are, our, our weird human, half spiritual, half physical, only being like it in the universe thing, right? Sure. That's important that we pass on that viewpoint, because if we're not realizing that we're passing on the other viewpoints, then it leaves our children open to say, well, why not transgenderism? Why not homosexual relationships? Because... If they find themselves thinking that the body doesn't matter, or they find themselves thinking that there isn't really any kind of hardcore reality, you know, it's all experiential, then there's no reason for them not to accept these things. Absolutely. Go ahead. And you need to remember that 
most most kids are spending eight plus hours a day at school with their teachers who who even like I said even if they're well-intentioned may not be well formed and um, and it, it takes that kind of time to educate someone but you have to be aware of what they're what they're coming home with and yes it may be impossible to know everything they've picked up even implicitly from their teachers at school but it means you have to be twice as verbal about the things you want them to learn right because in many cases your time with them is less and just to as a side note for those who send their children to public school and then they're taking their kids to a catechism or PSRCC program you know um, often the number of hours of education they receive in those programs because of because of practical matters is you know maybe 20 to 30 it's not a lot you that again that is just a droplet compared to the number of hours they're watching tv right or the number maybe probably or watching videos on their phone or even just talking to their friends who have different ideas listening to their teachers who who may be um pushing who who may be pushing some kind of uh, modern agenda or modern thought. And so to to counteract that means that the time you spend with them has to be three times as rich. And, and it's it's frightening. It, and lots of prayer. You know, many mothers have prayed their children into heaven. I really believe that. <laughs> right. And and again, you know, we can't make the, they're not robots, you know, children and especially as they get into adulthood, have free will. And we can't promise that, you know, if you do everything right, they'll end up doing what you want them to do. But it gives them something to fall back on, at least. The more you talk about it, the more tools of the faith you give them, that someday, even if they've, they've um, traveled from the church a little bit, but when things get hard, they have something to come back to, you know, and that they have an idea even that there is that there even is something to come back to. That's right. That's right, that there is a home. Cecilia, we are out of time. And so I I, I just want to thank you for another great talk, a very pertinent topic, and and sharing your witness. Happy to have you on here. Thank you. Very good. Thanks for tuning in to this week's One Body Stewarding God's Creation show. Folks, heaven is not seen, but neither are these airwaves. However, you can help save souls for heaven by helping this radio station stay on the air. So please go to dvmercy.com and click on Donate, where your donation will be seen and appreciated. You're listening to Divine Mercy Radio, 105.7 KMDG Hayes, 101.7 KJDM Lindsberg Salina, 88.1 KRTT Great Bend, and 88.1 KBDM Hayes. If today you hear his voice, harden not your hearts. Stewarding God's creation